I, for many years, I've been – before the Fed, I have long time been an advocate for – of the need for the United States to return to a sustainable path uh, from a fiscal perspective at the federal level. We have not been on such a path for some time, which means just means that the, that the, the debt is growing faster than the economy. Um, this is not the time to act on those concerns. This is the time to use the great fiscal power of the United States to to do what we can to support the economy and try to get through this with as little damage to the longer-run productive capacity of the economy as possible. The time will come again, and reasonably soon, I think, where we can where we can uh, think about a long-term way to get our fiscal house in order, and we absolutely need to do that. But this is not the time to be, uh, in my personal view, this is not the time to to let that concern, which is a very serious concern, but to let that uh, get in the way of us winning this battle, really. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Pierre Richard, joined with Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. How are you, Michael? I'm doing. I'm doing just fine. I've I've survived this exponential. Um, we'll see if I can survive the Bitcoin exponential. It's a roll of the dice every time. And we've got here as our uh, three-time repeat guest, I think, Preston Pish. No, I'm only. I think only twice. I think uh, th- yeah, there, there was a time that we rebroadcasted an interview you did with Pierre. So you have appeared two prior times. Oh, got it. So yes, the third time. There you go. All right. So uh, we've got you back because uh, you're one of my one of our favorite guests. And you've got a good bridge between the traditional financial world and the Bitcoin world. And I feel like that's often missing in a lot of the conversations uh, about what's going on on the macro landscape. Uh, and, I, and I love listening to your podcast, even when you have uh, non-Bitcoin uh, guests <laughs> on. Uh, it's always very informative. I appreciate that, guys. Uh, the Investors Podcast, TIP. With, um, and uh, so now I wanted to, let's see, where to start? So there's a lot going on in the traditional financial system. Uh, it seems like it is basically... Uh, either falling apart or uh, prospering, depending on the day. Um, but can you, like, I guess we should start, first of all, with, with this coronavirus uh, stuff. Um, Preston, do you believe in viruses? Do you think they're a real thing? Or is this a, a, a sham? No, I, d- I don't think it's a sham. Um, you know, back in January, when... I started tweeting about this um, and getting a lot of crap about tweeting about it and uh, even did a podcast episode. I want to say at the end of January, maybe the beginning of begin beginning of February when it actually came out um, with Eric Townsend. And I mean, we were we were laying into this saying this was going to be a really big deal. And dude, we got so much 
uh, I mean, everyone was furious. I mean, furious. Uh, I had people just, I mean, you just can't imagine the feedback we were getting from this saying, you're an alarmist. You don't, nothing's even happened. Oh, that's only in China and a small town in China and this and that. But I mean, I was just watching the video feeds out of China and in Wuhan in particular, which is a town that's bigger than New York City. And people just have to put that in perspective, right? This is a town that's bigger than New York City. And the firsthand account videos that were slipping out underneath of the firewall were crazy, absolutely mad and just total madness. Um, and so, you know, in the military, they send you through biochem exercises. They'll take you, they'll throw you in a tent. It's got CS gas inside there. They'll say, take off your mask and you got to breathe this stuff in the, the CS gas in. You're just, you got all this snot, everything just coming out of your nose. Cause what it is effectively is like really fine shards of glass that you're breathing in when you're breathing in CS gas. And so like, I've been through these types of exercises. I've done that in the military. And let me tell you, I know exactly what it looks like. And everything that I was seeing coming out of China was, was that it was, it was these kind of exercises. So, uh, whenever I saw everybody geared up in, in that type of equipment in this, you know, they call it mop level four or five, whatever that, that they were wearing over there. Um, to me, I was saying, this is really bad. And if this goes where I think this is going to go, and you were looking at the supply chains, just completely shutting down in China, this is going to be really bad. Um, so early on, I was, I was very, uh, I was very concerned about this now that it's here in the States. Do I think that every single state should be shut down in the way that they're shut down based on the amount of cases that are there? I think this should be, you know, an, a, another reference to the military. They say, distribute the authority to the lowest level possible. Let those people make informed decisions and, um, don't be this commander of, a thousand people telling everybody that they need to march this way or do this thing. You want to distribute that down to the lowest level. You want them to make informed decisions. And then what you're going to find is that you, that you perform the best that way. So I think when you look at how it's being handled here in the U S I think New York has major issues in their hospitals. They've got to, they've got to, um, they've got to push that. I mean, cause it all comes down to your bottleneck, which is at the hospitals, right? So like their hospitals are at max capacity. They're having all sorts of issues. So like in that area, it's terrible. You go to other parts of the country, it's not bad at all. So why are these people not having the ability to work? Um, and I think it really needs to be governed by the governors of each of these states. Then it needs to be pushed down to the local communities as to how they're handling it. Um, and I think if they just took that approach, they might find that maybe the impact to the economy wouldn't be nearly as bad. I think that's what you're getting at with your question. Is that what you're getting at with your question? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was a deliberately vague and wide ranging question, but, um, <laughs> I, I actually wanted to ask on, on, on the point of, um, the pushback that you got from people about, uh, you know, accusing you of being an alarmist, um, like why why do you think that is is it because like we've had false alarms before with like i think ebola you know they they made a big deal out of it and then there was like nothing um so people maybe were were trained to think that the boy cried wolf or is it just a hard concept for people to understand no one's no one's experienced it in their lifetime here in the united states in 
you know, I'm, I'm talking about that specifically. In other parts of the world, you might see something different. But I think here in the U.S., no one has any, they've, they haven't seen anything close to this in, in their lifetimes. So for that, for people to see images of that overseas or over in Asia, and you look at how many people have even traveled outside of the United States, which is very few in, in, in a ratio percentage relative to like Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, they're just looking at it and they're saying that's never happened. It never will happen. It's, it's the definition of normalcy bias. Normalcy bias, and I'll probably talk about this more because I was listening to Mark Cuban's interview with Pomp, and I mean, it was like the definition of freaking normalcy bias. Because it didn't happen before, it won't happen in the future. End of analysis, end of thesis, you know, there, there isn't an ounce more of critical thinking. I don't even know if I would categorize that as level one thinking. It might be level zero thinking. <laughs> I love the grin on your face, Pierre. <laughs> well, uh, Michael has actually gotten into it with Mark Cuban. Um, Michael's a uh, Mark Cuban uh, debater OG. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I want to hear the backstory on this. Yeah. Because I don't I don't know the backstory. I just know that you basically told him to buy it years ago and he obviously didn't take your recommendation. And, and you always go back to the date and beat him over the head with a big tell us the entire I want to hear this whole story. Yeah. Okay. So it started in 2014 during South by Southwest. <laughs> um he was So this going... is aged, this is aged very well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um <laughs> So it started South by Southwest 2014. I think as far as I know, it was the first time that he was publicly speaking about Bitcoin. Um, it's at least what I grabbed for the Nakamoto Institute skeptics page. And he was saying sort of run of the mill stuff like, you know, oh, it's great technology, but Bitcoin, you know, is at the time he was saying it was like baseball cards. Um, and it's just like, it's not going to work as a, a currency or whatever. And he's kind of just making these, uh, you know, really, really lame, tired statements about Bitcoin. So I was getting into it on Twitter with him um, then. And I even, you know, I offered, you know, meet up with him. I was down the street from downtown at the time. Uh, and, you know, he didn't, he didn't take me up, but we got into this, you know, fight on Twitter. And then a year later, I was at a, a steakhouse during South by Southwest uh, in 2015, and I'm outside, and uh, a mutual and you totally friend, jumped him. <laughs> yeah, well, a mutual friend of uh, Pierre and, and myself uh, spotted Mark Cuban standing outside the state steakhouse. She was just like, "Hey, look, it's Mark Cuban. You should go get him, or whatever." And I just turned around. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, there's Mark Cuban." And I just, you know, stomp on up to him and say, "Hey, hey, Mark." You remember me? We got into a Twitter fight last year about Bitcoin. And he's like. Uh-oh, we lost Michael. No. Right at the, right. the climax of the story. Are you kidding me? How does that me? happen? Can you hear me? Oh, there okay, you go. You're back. You're okay, back. Yeah. So, so I tell him, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't even remember. I, I don't know where I was when I. <laughs> lost off but yeah so i was just saying like no you know i won and i i launched into a whole rant about uh bitcoin and uh why he was wrong uh with his analysis and stuff and uh well, well a lot of people would uh see that uh, hear about that and probably think uh you know what a 
what a dweeb uh, not being able to shut up about Bitcoin. It's true, but at the same time, Mark Cuban was actually quite interested in the discussion. We ended up having a, a quite a long discussion. It was like 15 minutes just standing outside going back and forth. Um, but he was taking, you know, positions, you know, that like uh, the Federal Reserve is doing a great job and we don't even really need to replace it and Bitcoin can't replace it anyway. And the real thing is blockchain technology, yada, yada, yada. Um, he ended up giving me his email address uh, to follow up. Um, but by the time I got around to like getting over the fact that like I just had, you know, is like accosting billionaires in the street and getting their emails for telling them they're wrong. I, it, it dawned on me as like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm a broke college kid. I really don't need a billionaire buying the Bitcoins that I wish that I could buy. <laughs> so uh, because of that, I just, I never even, you know, emailed him, but you know, the years go on and he, you know, pops out and, you know, continues to say stupid things. And it's like, it's in this really annoying fashion because he does give lip service to the technology. You know, he says like, oh, the blockchain technology at the time in 2014, he was pumping, uh, I think it was called like Cyberdust or something. And it was some chat app, you know, based on the blockchain. And we're supposed to take that seriously. Um, so it's like, you know, I, I can even imagine him trying to paint his himself as not really a being anti-Bitcoin or whatever, but it's just like, you know, uh, he's such a normie about it. It's, it's disgusting. And um, you know, I finally made use of his email back in September where I sent him a long email. I was like talking about stock to flow. And it's like, look, like we could see Bitcoin be a hundred thousand and, uh, by December, 2021. And I left it at that. He actually responded quickly. I sent a even better response to him. Never heard back from that, of course. Um, but I just needed it on the record. Like, you know, just remember who told you. Um, I just always want to dangle that over him because, uh, that's just how it is. Also, he owns the Mavericks, and I'm originally from San Antonio, so um, he's just unacceptable on all fronts. <laughs> I mean, th this is the moment where we've got to brand what the fundamental flaw is, because there's a fundamental flaw in his thinking. In my in my very humble opinion, there's a very, you know, obvious flaw in his thinking, and so I would I want to brand this the Cuban paradox. Right. So anybody who hears somebody else on Twitter or is, is spewing this narrative, this is the this is the Cuban paradox. And it's this idea and it goes back to the Twitter war I had with him. I don't know how long ago, but his comment all revolved around this idea that he allowed people to pay in his stadium with Bitcoin. And at the end of, I don't know what it was, at the end of the first year, he had like $600 of people that paid to go to his game with Bitcoin. And so his deduction at that point is nobody's using this and therefore it's never going to catch on. And therefore the price will never go up. And that's his thesis. And I think for anybody who, and I guess this is me throwing him a bone and like kind of empathizing with his position, because I think for most people that are just at the, at the micro level, they're at, hey, I, I own this billion dollar company or I own this $500 million company or I own this $1 million company. The only thing that really processes in their brain is this, well, if you don't have people using it and there's no utility, well, then the price is never going to go up. There's no one that's going to bid the price higher. And then that's the end of their analysis. But I think on this one, there's a, there's a very deep fundamental flaw in that thinking because 
they're not understanding what it's trying to achieve at its most root and intrinsic level. And so what I would tell you, in my humble opinion, what it's solving is it's pegging global central banks, all of them. It's pegging them. It's, it's literally pinning them to the wall and saying, there's not going to be any more of that. And if there is, you're going to be held accountable to it, right? That's what this is all about. That's, that is mission one. Like if you're going to layer, if you're going to list out all the missions on a piece of paper, mission one cannot be triumphed by anything else. Okay. You cannot put uh, the idea of all these people in third world countries paying with Bitcoin above it first pegging global fiat money that the central bankers continue to debase. You can't be expensive those people, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You cannot out prioritize that. That mission has to be accomplished no matter what before anything else can, can take place. So if you don't, if you don't understand why that's important, which I would argue tons of people do not understand why that's important because it's really comp when you dig into it, it's really complex of why that has to happen. And, you know, I'm going to, I have been promoting the living hell out of this book, but I'm going to do it right now. But that's why people need to read this flipping book. This book is called the price of tomorrow by Jeff Booth. And when you read this book, you'll, you'll gain an understanding as to why mission one has to be accomplished first, be first and foremost, before anything else, you can't compromise on that at all. If you compromise on that, there's going to be some other uh, protocol that's going to rise up and that's going to be more important. So when you look at well, why it is, why does Bitcoin accomplish that over everything else? You can get into a lot of the reasons why, but I guess if I was going to summarize real quickly, I think the fact that you can do really large transactions really quickly and with the utmost security, um, that's why Bitcoin just annihilates all the competition. And so going back to the, the Cuban paradox, so the idea is, well, if people aren't using it in my stadium and people aren't, you know, if, if there's no utility for people to use it, well, then how in the world is the price going to go up? Well, I'll tell you how the price is going to go up. So we've got this quantitative hardening happening here in May, the halving, right? So these miners that are going to mine the living hell out of this, right? I mean, just look at the, look at how much hashing is coming online in this two week adjustment that we're at right now. We're over 10% leading into this thing. And the price has been not, not spectacular. You know, it, I mean, it, it took the big hit. It had a, a significant bounce, but the price has just been kind of hanging around. So you have to ask yourself, why in the hell are all these people bringing more rigs online to the tune of 10% of the entire network on this two week difficulty adjustment that we, what is it that they know that no one else understands? Well, here's what they understand is that as soon as that having event happens, what happens to all the inefficient, you know, high cost producers or miners, what happens to them? They drop out of the market. They cannot compete. They have no margin, right? So they drop out. Well, all these people that are uh, spooling up these S17 mining rigs, guess what? They've got huge margins, massive margins. And guess what? They don't have to sell. 
they do not have to sell even after you take that that reward and you cut it in half you're pumping out half as much reward and guess what they're still in the money they still got margin and they're going to continue to mine they're going to mine the living crap out of it and not only are they going to mine it but they're going to sell less in order to offset and pay for their electrical bills than the people running the S9s that dropped out of the the market beforehand and guess what that does to the price it drives it higher. Okay. So now for everybody who heard me say that and what pops into their head is they say the, the argument that I constantly hear whenever you spew that narrative that I just spewed, they say, well, when you look at how much the miners are selling on the market, it's a pittance compared to the overall transactions for the whole network, right? That's what you hear. Well, guess what? It's you're using the wrong ratio when you're talking about that. Okay. The real ratio you need to talk about is how much are those miners putting onto the market to sell to, to recoup their electrical costs versus the amount of fiat that's coming in versus the, the amount of BTC and people that are leaving that network. That net difference between the people coming and the people going is in the denominator of that ratio, okay? not the total transactions. And so when you change that denominator to the thing that actually matters, which is the net difference between people coming and going out of the network, all of a sudden you have a very big number relative to the amount of selling that's taking place to the miners, which therefore means they're driving that, that floor in the price. And I can't tell you how many people miss that. People do not understand that at all. So that's my opinion as to why this, this event that's getting ready to happen in May, and it might take a month, it might take two months for that to really kind of, for the gears to kind of click and to kind of ratchet in. But when they do, the thing just takes off, right? Because the low cost or the, the, the people who are inefficient, the miners that are inefficient are completely out of the game at that point. That flow is not being sold, uh, sold into the market like it was before. The demand side, I think a good way of visualizing it is the uh, Unchained Capital's HODL waves, where they show the aging schedule of uh, Bitcoin outputs, basically showing that the, you know, these coins have not moved for more than a year. And you see that percentage increasing. And that, to me, is like a better way of thinking about the demand side than when people look at like the exchange trade volume and they say, oh, okay, well, you know, uh, Bitcoin mining is a tiny percentage of exchange trade volume. Like the exchange trade volume is a bunch of uh, zero sum uh, min exactly. minus the uh, house rake, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> trading going on. Um, whereas to me, the, the unchained capital hodl waves of the people withdrawing from the exchange and putting it on their cold storage, that is real demand. Uh, and, and that's what is real the... Uh, the reservation demand for cash. Mm -hmm. Totally agree with you. And if you're using the wrong metrics, you're going to come up with the wrong thesis and the wrong opinion every single time. So if you, and people that are listening to this might say, I completely disagree with what you're saying. And that's, that's fine. I encourage you to disagree and to find, you know, maybe a better metric. But for me, that's the only thing that I can think that makes sense. And why you consistently see this floor being set when you, when you plot this chart, the price chart, on a logarithmic scale since the inception of Bitcoin, 
why in the hell does it plot so perfectly in mathematical terms as far as, you know, the, the curve that you see? The only thing that I can come to the conclusion at is, is that these miners are setting a floor and the floor is, is completely based on that flow that's being dropped into the market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So very, very bullish, very bullish. Preston. <laughs> <laughs> and if you understood all this, maybe even a $600 investment because some people bought basketball tickets would be doing your well, you know, getting you some good games. It's funny that you say that because my comment back to Mark when he kept bringing this, this, you know, Cuban paradox up is I said, Mark, you're going to change your mind when Bitcoin passes, the market cap of Bitcoin pass, passes a trillion dollars and you're continuing to collect $600 at your games if you're assuming that he can continue to accept Bitcoin as a transaction. Because the thing that's driving it is not necessarily the utility at sporting events or at coffee stores or any of this stuff. The thing that's driving it. And so going back to what I described earlier, right? So you have, you have these miners that are, that are running new equipment that have huge margins that that accept this reduction in the amount of uh, coins that they're mining. And so they're selling less back into the market and then the price starts going up because you don't have as much selling pressure. So now it starts taking off. Well, now once it starts taking off, guess what? All these speculators then step into the market and then it becomes a speculative thing at that point. So where that transition occurs, I have no freaking clue. I have no idea where that transition occurs, but it, it's just human psychology. It's just how humans react when they start seeing the price go up and you got every freaking person on the street walking up to you saying, Hey, you know something about Bitcoin, don't you? Right. That's when you know that the speculators are in the game is when that starts happening. When you start getting the emails from people that you haven't talked to in 15 years and they're like, Hey dude, how's it going? Right. And you know you're that the mining is not driving the price at that point. The speculators are driving the, the people that are wanting a quick turn, a quick buck, the people that have no clue how any of this works, but they just want to make a quick buck. And that drives the that drives the cycle for a significant period of time. I have no idea how long, but it drives it from that point. And I would I would tell you anytime it passes the previous all-time high, it just gets it gets wild. It gets crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, last time I think, uh, it was around, I mean, I guess it was near, near the top, but by 15,000, I was mm -hmm. definitely hearing from people I had not heard from, uh, in quite a while. And my, my gut instinct, whenever that happens, uh, whenever there's that text or email or whatever is to check the Bitcoin price to see if I missed yeah. some <laughs> big upward swing. So that's assuming also that like everything is hunky dory in the fiat world, right? And that we're just looking at Bitcoin as just an endogenous process, which I think has been the right way to look at it for the past decade. Uh, but uh, we haven't seen Bitcoin go through a crisis yet, a financial crisis. And uh, there's been speculation that uh, Bitcoin is a risk on asset. It's basically just like uh, the tech Tamagotchi thing that uh, if there's a liquidity crisis in, in the system, then Bitcoin's going to crash. And I, that, you know, that, that's fed into 
or that I think has been reflected by its correlation with the S&P 500 uh, since uh, the start of the uh, the real reaction to COVID-19 in the financial markets. Um, but I actually think that if, if you look at, for example, the Sharpe ratio for four-year holding period, um, the Sharpe ratio for stocks has crashed, uh, whereas the Sharpe ratio for Bitcoin hasn't really moved very much at all. Um, and so that to me is like there's, there is, in fact, a... Um, a disconnect here, and Bitcoin is actually proving to be a better store of value, uh, even if the short-term people on Twitter can't really see it that way. Um, and that that it did bounce back so quickly after the uh, March 12th liquidation uh, that went down to like $3,600 uh, dollars or something. Um, it seems like that got all of the 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 leverage in the Bitcoin system had already been wiped out in December of 2018. And um, then it kind of got rebuilt uh, April to July of 2019. Uh, and then it got wiped out again, March 12th. Um, but now, you know, it's at $7,000 uh, and, and holding steady. So it, uh, it, it feels like Bitcoin's undervalued while stocks are still overvalued. I just think that when you look at the volatility that you're going to see in the stock market moving forward, it's going to be way higher than what we've seen historically, just because now that they're, now that they're not just using QE, which was the primary means of insertion for the last decade, now they're using UBI and now they're going to have to coordinate both of those together. I was always of the opinion, this was going to happen. It was just a matter of when it happened. Uh, I would have that conversation with some people when I and I told them, hey, even if Trump would be reelected, it wouldn't surprise me in the least bit that UBI would become a thing. And that people would look at me and they'd say, you are off your rocker. You are nuts. I said, it's just it's just a function of the math, man. Like there, there's only so much you can insert to the top before things just come off the rails. Um. In, in a weird way, I would say that the COVID-19 disguises a lot of the reality of these financial markets and everything that's happening. Because every, I think your, your typical person is just looking at this and saying, oh, well, this is just because of that virus that all this is happening. Yeah. Whereas, dude, this, this has been in the works for decades, just flipping decades. So now it comes down to, I mean, look at the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ's booming. It bounced. I mean, it has like a Bitcoin-like bounce to it. Um, and I think people that are looking at this and saying this thing is this is going to be Great Depression-like scenario, I think they're, they're forgetting that when you look at the charts from, uh, and it absolutely could be that. So please don't take this comment as me waving that, that it couldn't happen. I just think that the range of potential outcomes is much wider um, as to what we might see moving forward. So, um, you know, when you go back to 1929, you didn't come off the gold standard until 33. So you had this peg in place through that downturn, that grind, that three year, three and a half year grind, four year grind from 1929 to 1933. And during that entire period of time, you were working with a peg currency. You don't have that right now. 
not only do you not have it in the US, you don't have it anywhere. So that's where I think people that are immediately going to an analogous comparison to that, I don't think that they're necessarily widening their aperture far enough. I think that it's, I think it's wider than that. And the, the fact that they're throwing as much money as that they're throwing at this and you, and you know, I hate talking politics because I am politics agnostic, 100%. I don't think you can be successful in the markets unless you're politics agnostic. So whenever I, but, but this, and I, I preface that before I say this, when you look at how Trump's going to respond to this, I think he's going to respond to this with literally everything he can possibly throw at it times 10. And so if that's a true statement, um, you, I mean, you could see, you could see uh, people out of the labor market, highest unemployment numbers you've ever seen in your life. And I think you could see the market come back to levels that you saw before any of this happened, even with people out of work. And I don't think anybody's pricing that in, that, that potential in. And I think that that is a potential. I don't know that it's a high potential, but I think it's a potential. And uh, so what does that mean? And, and this is going off of what Pierre was saying earlier. This means crazy volatility. So if you're looking at risk adjusted returns compared to that volatility, yeah, you should see the sharp ratio for the stock market get crushed, right? Because not only are you not making really any real returns from where this thing started, but now you're, you're clocking in this massive amount of volatility and no one knows where the hell it's going next, right? It's completely dependent on government intervention. I mean, it has been for the last 10 years, whether people want to believe that or not. I mean, that's just a fact. I'm not trying to be tinfoil anything. It's just a pure fact that when you pump that much QE into the system, you haven't let up since 2009, right? You go clear up to the brink where everything falls apart. And then you're not only doing QE, but now you're doing UBI uh, to the tune of $2,000 a month right? Like in, until unemployment goes back to the lowest levels we ever saw since like the 1950s or 60s is, is how long they're saying they're going to keep that on. Like this stuff is crazy, man. This is just, this is total, absolute, unprecedented debasement at the nth degree that will literally make people's minds explode. Like that's how much debasement we're talking. And it's it's not even political in the sense that it's extremely bipartisan. You've got everyone <laughs> yeah. from Nancy Pelosi to Ted Cruz agreeing on this is what needs to be done. So the only person who disagrees is Thomas Massey, and he was uh, savaged and uh, attacked by both the president who is of his own party saying that Thomas Massey needs to be kicked out of the Republican Party uh, to, to obviously the Democrats uh, piling in on that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely bipartisan. And to, my, my view has been, um, and I've actually, I've, I've ended up uh, like horseshoe theory of politics, uh, also agreeing that this is the right course of action because this is what the system was all designed to do in a crisis um, in in a like Austrian economic system uh, where you have a deflationary money, um, m people would be holding much higher real cash balances. And uh, I think the inflationary system has actually ironically pushed down cash balances relative to prices. Um, 
And then when you enter into a cash flow problem, uh, like we have here, uh, there's no reserves. And so you have to create new money and to paper over the problem. The, the thing that no one talks about, especially those in academia, do not talk about this. And that's where it needs to be addressed. This is where, this is where all of this should be learned is counter opinions to the status quo. The thing that no one talks about is when you have an inflationary monetary policy, which we've had for eons since, since basically Bretton Woods, you've had inf an inflationary monetary policy. Um, and, and even when we were on a gold standard from 44 up to 71, it, I would argue, aggressively argue that you were in an inflation, inflationary monetary policy because of the debasement that took place through the money multiplier against the gold that was sitting in the reserves, right? That's a whole nother conversation. So if we, if we buy that argument that we've been in this inflationary monetary policy since 44, well, what happens is, is you set up this incentive structure around that inflationary monetary policy. And when you have that in incentive structure set in place for that long, you get the craziness, especially at the tail end of this thing, uh, which is exactly where we're at right now. Um, you have all these these incentive structures that are that are not pointing towards each other and that are self-reinforcing, but now that are actually the opposite way and they're they're self-ripping apart of each other. And um, you know, the only the only way that I can possibly see that fixing itself in a way that doesn't involve mass social unrest is for some type of deflationary force to step in from a monetary policy standpoint in order to slow that down. Because you're going so fast, you're literally hitting the speed of light as far as productivity, sliding productivity to the left due to inflationary monetary policy, because that's what it does is it slides productivity to the left, um, that, that the spaceship's doors are ripping off, that the whole thing's basically coming unglued. You're going so fast, you're approaching the speed of light that everything's being ripped apart. Well, Preston, you're in luck because I have the product for you. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, uh, it's called Bitcoin. It's a decentralized digital currency. Um, yeah, so I, I actually like kind of agree with you, Pierre, uh, in many ways. I have this like meta feeling towards history where uh, considering like how much of politics has always been about getting your hands on control of the money. Um, you know, I know there's like the, the classic, I think it's a Rothschild's quote about like, uh, give me control of the money and I care not who makes the laws or whatever. Uh, but, you know, Nick Zabo had a great set of tweets once about, you know, all of the, the wars that were really just, you know, plundering uh, gold vaults. You go forward to like the 19th century and, you know, people don't talk about this much, but one of the pillars in the Communist Manifesto was literally full state control of um, banking and credit um, because they wanted to do things like what we see today. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the, the sort of battles, you know, of, of political ideologies in the 20th century were also as far as I could tell, almost like just, you know, trying to control uh, the, the, the banking system. And that's like the, the, the money underneath that. Um, and uh, yeah, like in today's world, like you just are going to want to have control of that. And you're going to like keep 
doing whatever you need for this thing to survive and any kind of like non uh, anything that goes against what you're saying is going to put a halt to the system uh and so you're you're going to keep doubling down on that power unless you see that alternative which is why it's so embarrassing uh to see people like thomas massey um who's actually as far as i can tell usually like a great you know, defender of freedom and stuff, but it's sort of embarrassing to to take that frame of trying to stand athwart <laughs> uh, fiat money saying stop. Like instead, you need to just look for the the next gold vault, <laughs> the the next monetary system, so that you can uh, you know just exit it all together. And that's what Bitcoin's for. You've never had this in the history of mankind. You've never had anything that could overpower that or step in front of that and uh, make it invalid. So you can see why this has repeated itself time and time and time yeah. again throughout history is because there's never been a force that was, that's been able to step into this and call those, those entities, those government entities that adopted these policies that, acted in self-interested ways in order to, uh, you know, benefit their, their domestic nation. You've never had anything in the history of mankind that's been able to, to combat that. And now you do. Yeah. And I think someone like, you know, Thomas Massey or whoever wants who else, whoever else wants to step up to the plate. Um, you know, it's a big risk, big reward. If you're the one who's, you know, standing up for that, that change and then, you know, all succeeds because you can't, you can't beat that stock to flow and whatnot. Um, and you can't beat number go up. Um, then you get to, you know, lead the charge on that. There's, there's a huge political opportunity to be able to just, uh, <laughs> just exit it all and, and take on full dollar accelerationism uh, as part of a 100% Bitcoinist accelerationist platform. I'll tell you what's really interesting about what, what's going to happen here on this next cycle versus all the cycles before is in the past you had QE was the only way that the Fed and every other central bank was debasing the currency. And for 99.9% .9 of your population, that means nothing to them. That doesn't even, they're just like, Q what? Quantitative easing, like that's just some, uh, that, is that an engineering problem? Right. Like it makes no sense to them. Yeah. yeah. They, there's they that nerd no, talk again. There's that nerd talk. <laughs> like who is this weirdo and get them away from me. Right. So now you've got, now you've got something that's very different, which is with universal basic income and everybody receiving a paycheck of $2,000 a month until we get back down to the unemployment numbers from 1960. Um, people are starting to say, how's that possible? <laughs> right. There's like, huh? How, uh, how are they doing that? And how can that last? Um, how is that possible? How does that not have some type of impact? And so their guard is up and they're saying, this could, this could be bad, but so far it doesn't seem like it is. Okay, so when that guard goes up, they're looking for where could this go bad or where's, where's something that just doesn't make sense. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, a, a year from now, you're going to see, Bitcoin blow through a hundred thousand probably next summer. Right. And, um, when they see that and they see all this printing that's been taking place every single month, and they know that all these, not only companies getting bailed out, 
but I think the thing you're going to see in about six months from now is you're going to start to see municipalities getting bailed out and to the tune of just billions, trillions of dollars. People are going to say, this don't add up. There's something wrong. Why in the world is this magic internet money going over a hundred thousand dollars? And it's not even, it's not even real. Like, what is that? I think it's going to be the narrative and it's just going to drive further interest. It's going to drive so many other things that, that are not even understood at this point. And I don't even think it takes like consumer price inflation at the grocery store to make that happen where, you know, you've got people who day to day, they're like fighting over, uh, you know, whether it's at work or with their spouse over a budget of, you know, a hundred dollars there, a thousand dollars there. And then they turn on the TV and, Congress just passed passed a four trillion dollar bill. Like <laughs> four trillion dollars, what? Uh, and it's 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 unconscionable uh, to well, the average think, American. And I think the so you. I don't you, even know what that number means, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a no it's a Googleplex. <laughs> yeah, they could just like they. I don't even know why they like say trillion. They should just you know make up make up numbers at this point. I'm still well, waiting on my coin. So are you talking about the uh, trillion want, dollar coin? Yeah, I want my trillion dollar coin. <laughs> I think everyone, every American should get one. So if, if I was even going to add on top of that, so the, here's another thing that's going to make people's eyebrow go up and say, huh, this, this just does not make sense. So you could talk about it from the oil standpoint. I think the oil is probably the easiest one to understand. So right now, oil is getting obliterated, right? It's down to $20 a barrel. Um, the newest report out of the, the, the IEA, uh, international energy organization there, they're saying that the, that we're going to hit max storage capacity by the middle of the summer and that they expect those, uh, the storage to continue to fill up between now and then. Um, and then it's going to really get interesting. So like what happens to the price after you can't store it anymore? Well, then it really starts getting punished. So if if a lot of the consumption continues to be down, and I don't know how it can't be with this many people out of work, um, this many people not even traveling. I mean, I know personally how many times I've gotten in my car and, and moved around in the last month, and it is, it's not even comparable to what I was doing before this happened. So when you look at that price and you look at the price getting punished, and then eventually people are going to start traveling more in this time between now and, you know, these storage capacities hitting max capacity, these producers now, maybe not Saudi Arabia and and maybe oil isn't the best example because they're, they're trying to take all the market share from the North, North America right now. So they're laying on the, the capacity. I know they just did a deal, but I don't necessarily buy all that, but let's just talk about any other commodity, right? Those producers that are, that are manufacturing this are pulling that capability offline. They have to, they're going to go out of business if they don't do it. So they're pulling their capacity offline. I mean, it's just, all of this is totally <laughs> similar to everything you see in Bitcoin, but they're pulling their capacity offline. And when they want to stand that back up, it's not like they just turn on a light switch. That's, that's labor that they had to lay off that now went and found different jobs. It's all this stuff. And so when they do want to start ratcheting it back up, there's a quarter to two quarter delay before they can, they can produce at the capacity that's going to be demanded of them. Well, guess what happens to the price of commodities when that happens? They shoot up in a major way. 
Well, now if you're talking about the consumer price index, it's based off of the delta of the price that it was before. Well, if you have these prices hitting levels that are like not even understandable, like oil under $20 a barrel, um, which could get well under $10 a barrel, these numbers are crazy low. Well, if you even have a, the slightest bump in any of that, guess what just happened to your, to your CPI? Well, dude, it just shot to the moon, right? So that could happen. That could very easily happen in six, to, six months to a year from now. You're going to see that playing out in addition to the Bitcoin price, in addition to local governments being bailed out, in addition to the government stepping in and continuing to print uh, ungodly amounts of money, people getting their $2,000 check, check every month to just, I mean, this is the scenario that I'm playing through my mind as to how I see the world in six months to a year from now. That's what it's going to look like. And I just don't know how anybody who's experiencing that and then watching Bitcoin go up by $1,000 a day sitting on the sidelines and saying, oh, yeah, that's normal. It's not normal. It's, it's insane. It doesn't make sense. And then, then they're going to start digging into what the hell is this? Why has this thing not been able to die? Especially people in finance, when they see the price go, you know, the market cap go over a trillion dollars, it's going to really attract a lot of eyeballs and a lot of people saying, maybe I need to take a little bit closer look at this thing. Thank God Bitcoin exists <laughs> through all of this. I don't know what, what we'd be doing without it. Um, you know, Pierre, you had a great tweet. It may have been this morning or yesterday about uh, how debt holders uh, would want to be uh, hedging in Bitcoin because you don't know that you're going to get your debt paid off. Well, you, you know that you're going to get your debt paid off. You don't know oh, that uh, yeah, the, yeah, the that money it's that to... it's being paid to you is worth anything. Yeah, which, you know, people got really, there was a number of people who got really butthurt about a tweet I put out uh, about Wimbledon because Wimbledon had taken out pandemic insurance for the past, I think, yeah. 17 years Yeah, uh, to the this. tune of, I think, $34 million. And they got a payout of $144 million. So the that's great. You know, like it, it, it worked out for them and, you know, I'm glad that they were able to, uh, you know, get that, but people got really upset because I was just like, you know, throwing the obscene numbers. If you're, if you were, you know, daily cost averaging that into Bitcoin, the kind of returns you'd get, it would be over $4 billion and all that. And obviously that's a little absurd, but there's deeper points to that, which is like, do you have, you know, a, a good contract with the, the, insurance companies such that you get payout in actual money because like if 144 million dollars turns out to be nothing like how does that even help you uh, to get that payout you're just getting like more firewood to you know but michael keep, that's assuming that the people that are making these decisions understand your vantage point which oh of course dude nobody <laughs> nobody, nobody understands your vantage point i i hate to tell you which is why, like, you know, what, what hopefully they'll come to understand is Bitcoin really is insurance because it's just cash that's there for you and it's not going to be shut down. Um, and yeah, you might have to uh, take a 50% cut or something, but it's going to be there. It's going to be liquid. It's going to work. Um, it's better than nothing. Um, so 
that could happen, you know, in other places in the economy if the dollar really goes uh, haywire. Um, and then for everyone on the other side, you know, if you're getting these checks, you know, I, I don't know what people are going to be doing with those checks. You know, I, I assume a lot of people have, you know, things they actually want to buy. Other people might, you know, see it as sort of free money. And, you know, I guess like the, the sort of stated purpose of it is kind of like, you know, a sort of stimulus, you know, they want you to go spend it anyway. Well, if they, if any, if any proportion of them start uh, putting into Bitcoin uh, at any amount, that has a disproportionate effect on you know the the price of Bitcoin. Well, the thing that people don't understand about the impacts of UBI, well, I think they can. Some might understand this, but when you have people collecting two thousand dollars a month, and their previous paycheck was two thousand dollars a month, which I would argue is a significant portion of the population, way bigger than I think people in the middle class and upper class understand. What, what incentive do they have to work at all? And I mean, some are going to look at this and say, oh, wow, now if I continue to do my job, I'm going to make twice as much money as I was making before. There's going to be a lot of people that do that. But there's also going to be a lot of people that just say, hmm, I'm just not going to work anymore. I'm just going to click my UBI check. And that's going to happen. And that, that impact is just going to be, you're just going to see some really funky things happen that we have never seen in our lifetimes. No, I, I, at all. I don't know if I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a permeable. I look at everything through uh, rose-colored glasses and all that. Like Orange-colored glasses. Orange, yes, orange yes, colored. yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you have all these people who are just sitting on that, I mean, uh, would those not also be the type of people who would be very enticed by number go up? Absolutely, they would. The, they the way that to, they, you know, they, they might get into the lottery position. tickets. They have to have a position. They're not going to get incentivized to create disposable income until they have a place that they can funnel it. And right now, I would tell you, most people feel like there's, there's no hope. There's nowhere I can go where I can make any money by investing a dollar. That's how most people that are middle class and lower think about financial markets today. And But if, if those people also get into Bitcoin, I mean, I, I had to like, you know, talk to people in the the last bull market about you know it was, it was you know guys fresh out of college, not too much money, and they're you know throwing away money on on you know a shitcoin casino at Binance. You know, just like buying up. You know, they were trying to tell me about IOTA and whatnot. And I'm like, eh, don't do that. And like, I don't even know if you should be thinking about Bitcoin. You probably like need to like get your feet on something. Um, but. I, I'm just thinking, like, I'm, I'm looking here, you know, I opened up Cash App earlier and there was a whole thing. Cash App has a built-in now. There's a direct deposit that you can do into Cash App, meaning that people can give the IRS their direct deposit information and the money will go straight to their Cash App. And right on there on Cash App is also buy Bitcoin. <laughs> so, like, you know, it, it's it's almost trivial for uh these these people to get their feet in the door if they want to um and based on the situation you're describing it doesn't sound like people are going to be thinking uh you know prudently in terms of their finances which in this case uh because of the risk and rewards could actually work out for them 
but I, if you want to talk funky, like I, I can expect some, you know, crazy things happening around number go up. I totally agree with that. It's just going to take, it's going to take a little bit of time to kick in. And that goes into the whole speculation phase that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The rest of short is if your friend is making crap loads of money from even taking $500 of their UBI check and, and putting it into Bitcoin, you better rest assured they're going to be telling everybody under the sun about it. And implicitly, that's a sort of, I mean, it's, that's, that's, you know, there's a, uh, lines between investing and saving, but I do have a sort of optimism that that would be getting people into a savings mindset uh, because it's like, okay, well, let me put some of my check into UBI because it'll go up. Um, That'll be at a, like at around 25,000. <laughs> uh, that's when that's when we're going to start seeing the momentum traders uh yeah totally uh, by the way jack i know you're listening um i'm sure plenty <laughs> of people from cash app are listening uh you should make it so that people can put on a setting that as soon as they get a direct deposit into cash app it buys the bitcoins just the 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 ubi to bitcoin pipeline I agree with your price point, though, Pierre. Twenty five k. It's gonna yeah. be. Well, like you said, I mean, hitting a new all time high. That that's yeah. a yeah. psychological game changer. It's game on at that point. Now, so the the other part of the equation is that there's going to be uh, continued, let's call it demand destruction, right? Where employers are laying people off, uh, and so. Uh, and and then Mnuchin is being very stingy. He said that everyone has to survive off of twelve hundred dollars. I think it was for ten weeks, which th people did the math. That is fifty percent under the poverty line. Uh, so uh, he's really asking people. And to... that's not even taking inflation into the equation. Yeah, that's that's not a ramen diet. That's like fasting uh, for, <laughs> for ten weeks. Um, so, like, I, I really think that there's a, a kind of a risk on the side of um, governments not being inflationary enough, uh, where they are penny pinching. And you know, the SBA uh, loan program just ran out of money today, uh, and they're 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 kind of in this. They're they're not in the full accelerationist MMMT MMT mindset, right? They're they're still in the old school. Well, you know, we're gonna have to pay off this debt someday, so let's let's cool off here a little bit. Um, and I fear that that might uh, cause some deceleration in the short term. You know, it, it's so hard to be able to to say one way or the other. I'm I just have no opinion and. Uh... You know, when it's not something that I feel like I have a lot of knowledge points on, I just default to 50%. I have no idea. Now, uh, the Federal Reserve, on the other hand, has been, uh, I, I think it is actually more responsive and faster than than Congress. And I think that that was probably this, this, the case as well in the previous financial crisis, right, where TARP got voted down the first time around. Um, and so there actually is... is it, ironically more willingness to bail out the banks than there is to bail out the common the main street um and i i just don't think that the banks themselves are going to go um wh why would they go out and lend money 
you know, and 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 the Fed has opened it up to to triple A rated companies, and they're gonna go down the 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 yield curve and find worse and worse credit to to buy in their facilities. Um, but that are they gonna go Japan style and start buying equities as well? There's there's been noise about that. Well, I, I I don't know, but the fact that they're already buying junk debt tells me that um, they're they're probably championing uh, being a champion of that idea. Um, I mean, which is just totally insane. It's just it's it's as far as I'm concerned, you are so far off the the rails of capitalism at this point already. Even not even buying the the equity market. But the fact that you're stepping in and basically saying, yeah, that's junk debt. Let's buy it and let's keep these zombies alive is effectively what they're saying. Um, I mean, dude, it's scary. It's, I think that's the best way I can describe it is it's scary that you're seeing that. But, but let's, let's look at why they're doing this. Okay, They cannot allow interest rates to go up. That is a fact. If if interest rates go up, well, now all of a sudden they can't issue the debt at the volume that they need to issue it at. And so um, they can, they're going to do everything they can possibly do to keep interest rates at 0%. And, um, and so as they're doing that, and this, that's where the, where the calculus for them gets really difficult because now they've got to do UBI. They realize there's social unrest at this point with the amount of people that are out of work and that are going to continue to be out of work. So now we got to do UBI, but we also have to continue to do QE because we can't allow interest rates to go up or this whole thing goes boom. So now they're in this tricky situation where they can't turn off either one of those spigots. They can only basically turn them up. And so I've had a couple of tweets and it's hilarious because I don't hear a peep out of a single solitary Wall Streeter on my account. And I have a lot of Wall Streeters that follow me. Um, and not a freaking word about the idea that you're going to get inflation, but you're going to get it all at once. And it's going to come like a flipping tsunami. And, and what it is, is it's, it's total trust in the bond market breaking down. It's th that point where everyone says, hold on a minute. Oh my God, this is a tsunami coming at us. Oh my God, I got to get up on a tree or I got to get up on a building or I'm going to die right? And then everyone exits those positions out of these bond markets and it's going to be a flipping tsunami. And they're going to, they're going to continue to do QE. They're going to continue to do UBI. And then all of a sudden there's going to be this breaking point. It's just interesting to see the parallels between that and, and the virus, right? Um, where in, in both cases, there's, there's a period of denial until uh, the ICU is full of people on respirators and then you, you can no longer deny reality, right? That's right. And, uh, what, what, what is that going to look like in terms of uh, the ICUs being full of people on respirators, right? From the uh, monetary inflation perspective, um, how, how do we know that we're, we're starting to hit that point of there's no denial anymore? For me personally, uh, I think if we break the upside of the stock to flow model, you're there. Um, I mean, I don't know how else to look at it. 
but I think that if you see if you see that model break, which I would argue seeing it break to the upside is probably around a three hundred thousand dollar price, something like that, right? Uh, if you see that happen and you see the price go beyond that and you see it keep running, you, you're probably you're probably witnessing that event. So I like this metaphor. Bitcoin is the monetary ICU, right? Uh, people who are uh, who, who need uh, the best care in the world from a monetary perspective uh, end up in the Bitcoin ward. And when I look here at kind of um, and then and then we can think about the stock to flow, uh, you know, second um, standard deviation as kind of the overflow capacity of this ICU unit. Um, it's 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 really in 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 2021 uh, we're at five hundred thousand dollars as the upside of this second standard deviation, uh, mm-hmm. which today sounds like okay, well that's just pure hopium. And you know Pierre's being crazy, um, but uh, really I'm just looking at at the exponential, right? And I'm just like uh, you in January saying, "Hey, look, this is what's going on in Wuhan right now. Uh, why why do you think it's going to be different in New York City? It's not. It's going to be the, exactly the same. The, the way I would like to describe these having events is their attempts at their attempts at uh, basically escape velocity. So each time you go through one of these having events, these quantitative tightening events, it's Bitcoin's attempt at trying to escape gravity and, and exit the, uh, the orbit. And so last time we saw that, we saw the attempt, the speculators could have taken it to 100,000 and then you could have maybe gone further. But... All the market participants were not at a point where you had enough buy-in for that to occur. So what happens? Well, the gravity of the, uh, the two-week difficulty adjustment took hold, and it brought it back down into its orbit where it needed to remain until it could ramp itself up and go through its immunization in order to get ready for the next attempt of its exit velocity. So right now, we've got the quantitative height. Uh, tightening happening, it's going to make another run at it. It's almost like watching a high jumper, right? He's going there, he's going to jump over it. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't make it, he comes back and he does a thousand reps on the legs and then cools off for a, a couple of weeks. And then it makes another run. It's, 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 it's the exit velocity. Um, so what we're watching is we're, we're watching the next attempt. And whether it makes it or not, I have no idea. I kind of suspect, based on the, the backdrop of everything that's happening in the other markets, that you probably have a pretty high probability that it's going to make it this time. Um, probably higher than a lot of people want to give it credit for. But if it doesn't, no big deal. It comes back down into that stock to flow level that you got all that difficulty adjustment that's going to pull it back in there if you can't get enough market participants to join the network and bring it to total dominance. It's going to come back. It's going to ramp up. It's going to get stronger. It's going to get more security on the network. You're going to have new miners that are going to enter. All of those things are happening, which are just making it that much stronger. It's completely anti-fragile. Um, and there's plenty of people that have said that before. So if it doesn't make it this time, it'll make it on the next time and just keep on attempting. It's, it's mm-hmm. not going away. And um, 
It's just a matter of when it reaches it. It's, it's escape velocity. I'm kind of hopeful that on this next one, it's going to make it. And the bear case is that it's going to oscillate around hundred thousand um, dollars. If it does yeah. not make it out. Yeah. I think the the real bear case at this point is uh, a measly thirty thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> using using um, uh, Nick Emblow's uh, sort of uh, latest uh, stock to flow model based on some I don't I don't remember the the it's like it's ARDL like AR, yeah yeah um, and so that's that that's the bearish number I, I can only imagine people uh, giving us giving us shit because it's only thirty thousand. <laughs> but um yeah at the same time using like the 100,000 uh model uh even 300 actually is like is completely within the range of the stock to flow um uh price points in fact that would i think if i remember correctly 300,000 would be pretty equivalent to the 20,000 this past round um in in terms of the scale um it has to go i, I if i remember correctly plan b said about Three to ten uh, x the S two F price is uh, sort of within bounds before you're going to really be breaking uh, that that model. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of room for velocity, but I mean, if you're getting into ten x to one million, like I I do have to wonder what brings it down. Well, miners, right? Uh, there there would just be so much money going into mining at that point that. Uh, that's that's what is the uh, the mean reverting uh, yeah. causal mechanism. It just gets too difficult. So there's too much competition. I mean, it'd be like if the price of gold sh- shoots to seven thousand dollars, you'd have everyone and their kid sister trying to mine. Right, it's right. Super competitive as the time goes on. You you know what I really pay attention to is I, I guess what I meant is if it was getting up to a million, uh, the if if everyone did uh you know was was still fine with the dollar at that point that that could happen what you're describing but if it gets to that point if what what is the point in which everyone in the world looks at it as like okay like we we got to capitulate so historically when you look at the thirds in the four year cycle mm-hmm. so take four years right? 365.25 times four, whatever that number is, then you're going to divide that by a third. Those are the key inflection points in the four-year cycle, the thirds of it. So if you look at the first third of the four-year cycle, uh, which takes you out to like the 10th of November, 2021, that's where you should see the price really kind of hit its fever pitch uh, through all the speculators and everyone stepping in. If you see the price continue to run way past that date, I would tell you things are really starting to get interesting as far as escape velocity goes. I see. Then, then you take the next third. In the next third, you should see the bottom, uh, whatever date that comes out to. I have not tried to figure out, tried to quantify what that date is. But if you take another third of that next four-year cycle, that's where your bottom should be based on too much competition. The miners bringing it back down into reality. And then you're going to see a bottom there because the difficulty adjustment is going to going to assist with so much competition entering the space for hashing power. And then the next third takes you to the, to the next halving event. Those are the dates that I kind of pay close attention to. I like that heuristic. Yeah. I wanted to go back to uh, the point Michael was making about the, the kind of the primal importance of money uh, historically in terms of conflict 
and the amount of plundering, which really should not be surprising because you're talking about the most liquid good in society. Like that, it makes sense that that would be kind of the uh, the crown jewel that you go for every time. People took to the to the seas and uh, subjugated entire new continents continents of people to get their hands on it, only to destroy their own economy in the process. But the golden calf. Um, now, uh, the so you'll hear people say that the U.S. dollar is backed by the might of the U.S. military, and I think that the the naive way of thinking about that is that uh, the U.S. military is is holding a gun to people's heads, forcing them to use the U.S. dollar. I think that the more sophisticated way of thinking about it is that the U.S. military creates an environment where it is safe to use the US dollar, right? And they are able to repel opponents who adversaries that are trying to undermine the US dollar and trying to seize it. And so to me, like the US military actually adds to the seizure resistance of the US dollar. And that's why it is strategically important to have aircraft carriers around the world securing trade routes uh, and having a global financial system that is, uh, you know, dollar centered. And the, the, the way Bitcoin challenges this is not by challenging it head on, uh, but rather by flanking it in the sense of, okay, we're going to do this in cyberspace and we're going to have, it's interesting because the US military could attack Bitcoin in cyberspace, right? Uh, it could try to prevent nodes from getting online and essentially work with ISPs to kick people off. And it would be very challenging to, to route around that. We would have to have uh, Adam Back's satellites and uh, Nick Zavo's uh, shortwave radios to to you know g g go go pirate, um, but uh, it's 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 like because we're operating on a different battlefield than the 20th century battlefields that we're able to uh, dominate from a monetary perspective, and now state actors are playing catch up. And this isn't the U.S. even. It's like China is trying to come up with their digital currency. Um, but I don't think that they like fully understand that the importance is in the networks and the the peer-to-peer -peer network of the, the, the biggest advantage you have as a user of Bitcoin. And I think Mark Cuban doesn't understand this either, is running a full node. I don't think that Mark Cuban... <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't think Mark Cuban understands the, the game theory of running a full node, um, which is really far more important than the number of ticket sales you have for the Mavericks. <laughs> Another aspect that I always like to bring up with the military, whenever people you know, try to make the chartalist uh, claims around uh, money and the legitimacy of money and all that, is uh, in order to have that military you do have to pay them something, you know? Uh, and, and right now the military generally like they, well, they, I guess by law or whatever, they, they accept us dollars, but at some point, unless you plan on, you know, enslaving people, which requires paying some other people to, 
you know, uh, take control of, of those defectors, uh, you know, maybe they'll demand another currency or, or just devalue the U.S. dollar by putting their payment into a different currency. I think it's just an old argument that's, that's been said so many times that it was uh, prior to Bitcoin, it was a very strong argument. You could, you could go with that all day long because, in my opinion, it was a valid argument. Um, but now you've got, uh, you just got a different, you got a different situation. So just templating that into this situation, I don't think is a direct correlation and doesn't work anymore. Um, could it, let's say China or the U S or whoever has a major problem with this and they want to wreak havoc by shutting down internet service providers, causing issues with the satellites, all that kind of stuff. They can absolutely do that. And I think that that if they did that, you would see the price in the interim absolutely suffer. And um, where I think that it's going to run into an issue on the long haul is uh, a lot of these governments right now are having issues with maintaining uh, support of the general population uh, just because of the situations we're in right now. So if they step in and they, they punch something in the face that was actually providing substantial returns to people, to your people that have never been able to make any type of return at all in, in any type of market, I think you're going you're gonna to potentially cause some social unrest. You're going to potentially cause, especially from some of these smaller nations that have been a victim of dollar dominance, which um, Living in America, a lot of Americans don't understand what that feels like or what that experience is like. But for every other country in the world, they know exactly what that experience is like. And I think that that's going to potentially cause problems if you would see uh, some of those antics. So is it a risk? Absolutely. Is it a long-term risk? I'm not so sure. Is it a short-term risk? Absolutely. If, if it would be implemented. Um, so you know, I'm just trying to look at it as objectively as possible. Um, I kind of suspect this thing is going to be moving out at a clip that's so fast that you have people. Uh, I mean, let's face the facts. There are some people with substantial wealth uh, in this space that can influence politicians, that can influence uh, decision makers. I think a lot of that might already be taking place, and it's only going to get stronger in the year to come. Uh as this goes in the direction that we think it's going to go. The, the, if it would be implemented part to me is, is the, the key thing there, which is that, and let's bring it back to the virus in November, the army intelligence services notified the white house and the national security apparatus that COVID-19 was a problem in November, six months ago. And they didn't pay attention to it because they just didn't, again, that normalcy bias. And I think that like you could have the Federal Reserve tell Congress, hey, uh, this is a problem. We need, we, we, need, we need the US military's cyberspace capabilities to shut down Bitcoin. And the I don't know that Congress would even listen to them, like in the sense of uh, agreeing with their analysis, um, because I, first of all, I think that the only people that would come to this conclusion is the Federal Reserve. Uh, they're the only people who employ enough Keynesians that uh, you could <laughs> uh, develop that, that view. Yeah. 
So going back to what I was talking about earlier, as far as the bond market blowing up all at once, my opinion is this is going to happen so quickly that there's not going to be really too much that can be done in the time span. This is because everyone's opinion on this is going to be, especially on wall street, everything's fine. Nothing's changed. The, the, the bond market's fine. Look at the volatility in the yields. They haven't moved an inch because that's how they measure stability. They're looking at how much of the yields changed. Well, the yields are still pegged at 0%. So there must be nothing wrong. Meanwhile, if you look behind the curtain, the Fed is buying all of the selling on that fixed income market at such a pace that, I mean, it's the, the money's catching on fire. It's coming in the door so fast as they're swapping the, the cash for the bonds. Like that market is in total chaos. But the only people that are seeing that are the, the few people in that room handling those transactions that are buying all that selling. So I think you're, you're going to have the price going up. There's going to be a lot of people talking about it. And then it's just going to be this moment, like the snap of a finger where everything happens so quickly that you're not going to be able to outmaneuver it because the, the pace is happening so fast. Yeah. I think a, a concept uh, that may have come out. Yeah. It came out of the U S air force, the OODA loop observe, mm -hmm. orient, decide, act. And I think that markets and Bitcoin especially has an OODA loop that can just not be competed with by any bureaucracy or even by uh, traditional markets where, you know, in that liquidation day of uh, March 12th, the, you, you, this is where like Bitcoin's volatility is its strength is that it is able to discover price far more quickly than any other asset, uh, you know, that is of proportional liquidity, let's say, per unit of liquidity. Um, and that to me is part that that's the 10 minute settlement period. There's no competing with that. And the, uh, th that's the beauty of the 24 seven blockchain global network uh, that no government entity can compete with. And they, they can't even compete with a virus, right? They can't, they, that, 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 that was outside of their OODA loop. Um, and I don't think that, uh, yeah, I agree with that. The uh, Bitcoin's going to move far more quickly than they will ever be able to catch up to. I think that's the thing that's, that's going to blow everyone's socks off is it's going to happen so fast. That transition is going to happen so fast. So it goes back to the question I had for Mark Cuban in Pomp's, you know, Twitter feed, which was, where does all this money go when the $100 trillion bond market blows up? And of course, he had some snide, dumb response. It was, it was beyond, I mean, it was such a weak response. I shouldn't even replied back to it. But that's, that's, the, that's the question that if you understand how that's going to resolve itself, and more importantly, the speed at which it's going to resolve itself, I think you can understand why a lot of the, the arguments of like, well, it's backed by military force and all that kind of stuff is for in my brain and the way I think about it is just kind of noise because of how this thing is going to resolve itself. And then everyone else wakes up the next morning and it's like, okay, well, here's the reality. And they, it's been interesting to see how quickly people do accept a new reality. Right, they such as we've seen. Yeah, they, there's there's resistance yeah. to it. 
the resistance breaks and then they just fully accept it. In fact, yeah. I mean, it, considering just looking at the, the, the coronavirus stuff, um, the amount of uh, backlash there was against people uh, kind of very worried about it. Those quickly, the, uh, so many of these people so quickly became uh, vehement anti anti alarmist people. Whereas, like, if you if you hold any skepticism about what's happening, they will come after you. And that we, happened just overnight. We saw the same thing with the masks. The people who were anti mass suddenly became like. Uh, mask forcers, right? They're like, right, oh, yeah. now, now it's legally required. And we're going to see people be like, uh, well, now Bitcoin's legal tender. Okay, you have to use Bitcoin. I mean, there was, you know, three, is, three months ago, Pierre came out with a tweet that says, cut your own hair and save some money and buy some Bitcoin. <laughs> and I and I was like, okay, he's hmm. lost. He's off his rocker. This dude is, is losing it, right? But here I am cutting my own hair, buying Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I got a hat on tonight. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, did, I didn't cut for... my own hair, and this is what you see now. As the result, is this mess. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've uh, I said it a while back that uh, you know people should be thankful for the Bitcoin maximalists we have now, because in the future they won't be so peaceful. <laughs> yeah, when, when uh, the. Oh, now I forget that congressman's name. Brad Sherman. Brad when Sherman. Be, when he becomes a Bitcoin maximalist, <laughs> the shitcoiners are not going to think about us as being toxic. They're going to think about us as being moderates, uh, you know, while Brad Sherman is uh, finding ways to DDoS uh, Ethereum. And, and the, the, the quote that I, I'd pull up when I would say this would be like, um, it was this old Thomas Paine essay where he was talking about how if I remember correctly, it was something along the lines of if you even so much as argue that uh, that there should be paper money, then you should be executed. <laughs> it's like, guys, like if you think if Bitcoin maximalists are not toxic, uh, you should go. You should go check out these uh, these these bad motherfuckers in the the 18th century. <laughs> There, there was a similar thing about mm -hmm. um, insolvent fractional reserve banks uh, and uh, the death penalty in Spain. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Catalonia. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, Soto's book. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like page 73 for those who want to know. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I've referenced it <laughs> so many times. I love, that that's why it. I like Michael so much. <laughs> I, I oh, fear yeah, that yeah, Michael but... will become one of these people. <laughs> I I will be speaking out against Michael's tyranny. <laughs> well, uh, what's fascinating about that story, and and I I I wrote a a quick little article about it back years ago, probably like 2015 or so, and I was just pointing out how you know basically what was happening in Catalonia, they were having a problem with. Uh, banks going bankrupt. And at the time, it's very obvious what it means when a bank goes bankrupt. It's because you were fractional doing fractional reserves and you went bust. Um, and so uh, the the state was having to get more and more draconian about it. Um, first, there was like something about um, you had to go on a diet of bread and water until you could pay back everything. Um, and then there was another where it's like, Oh, and it, it didn't stop. And so they got to the point where it's like, if you do not um, 
pay back the debts in like two weeks. We're going to ride around town, tell everyone how evil you are. And then we're going to guillotine you, or I guess they weren't guillotine, but you know, chop your head off, um, by whatever method. And, uh, uh, and, and yet a couple of decades later, there was still a credit crisis, meaning like even with that. So uh, my takeaway from that was the, the drive to print money when you have your, your finger on the printer button or, you know, in whatever time you are, the, the human drive to hit that print button is just so strong that the literal sword of Democles can be hanging over your head and it won't stop you. And that's why we need Bitcoin. You need to be cryptographically prevented from printing your own money. And it's for and- your own safety. <laughs> It's kind of a sad testament to, to, to humanity, though, that uh, we need to have this. It, it took until you know getting to 2008 and having the ability to have telecommunications networks, uh, semiconductors, and uh, cryptography, uh, a hard, hard cryptography, uh, to finally get an actual sound money. I mean, I don't even know that it's a failure of humanity so much. It's just like, that is how difficult it is to create such a massive coordination game. Um, so it's really a testament to human technology that we've finally put all the pieces together to allow us to be able to do this. I, I still think God is disappointed that we weren't able to figure it out without, without the technology. That with just pure, and it's funny because we got, I think we got very close to it um, with trying to create independent, quote unquote, central banks. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the independence, though, is is so easily pierced uh, that uh, it really didn't hold up very well. I think it was Arthur Burns under Nixon that uh, kind of got bullied around. And I I, I think that uh, Jeremy Powell got bullied around by Trump as well, <laughs> uh, where he was. Let's remember before COVID-19, Jeremy Powell was cutting interest rates because Trump was pressuring him into doing it, I think. Uh, I, I don't know that there was any kind of strong reason to be cutting rates at the top of the cycle. Do you remember when Trump was tweeting, shaming you if you hadn't made like 50% returns? <laughs> uh, and and I think it was Eric Trump that said, hey, it's a great time to be buying stocks now in uh, February <laughs> or something. Uh, I, you know, he was like, YOLO, I just went all in. He, I think he deleted it by the end of the weekend. <laughs> womp, womp. That's okay. Who hasn't done that, right? Uh, I was telling people to buy Bitcoin in December 2017. It's all good. Now, to Preston's credit, who, who, who Preston was not. Who, who was not telling people to do that in <laughs> December 2017? I think that you had the the uh, sanity and the uh, sober-mindedness to not. Uh, but uh, you know it wasn't that like, weren't then? you talking to us at that point? Like you were you were making some bullish uh, estimates, like using the mayor multiple and stuff. I mean, sorry, bearish in yeah. terms of short term. Yeah. So. Back then, you didn't have the backdrop that you have right now. So that's why I was very skeptical whether you were going to hit escape velocity on that run. And just kind of looking at how the protocol functioned back then, and then looking at that multiple and looking at, hey, when it 
when it hits three standard deviations on this multiple, that's not a good thing. Well, I was of the opinion that the thing was not going to be globally adopted at that point, Mm -hmm. like at all, not even close. Um, All the markets were functioning normally with the exception of all the QE that was being done, but that didn't seem like it was causing any type of volatility waves or anybody's going to jump ship from what they were currently doing. So now I think you got a completely different scenario and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're going to see it hit escape velocity this time. I just think that the probability is way higher than, than maybe most are expecting simply because of the backdrop. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. In which case it's extremely risky to try to be timing the top on this cycle. Oh my God. Yeah. I, now, I think you're kind of crazy to do that. Buy, buy you know, and I, I had a tweet once that was like, you know, only buy the Bitcoin you can afford to hodl. Right. You got to, you got to keep an eye on your expenses to, to make sure you don't over, overexpose yourself. Um, Just remember scissors are cheap and, and haircuts are expensive. <laughs> so. <laughs> Although you don't really need to cut your hair. So. That's even less expensive, right? Just let it grow out. Yeah, you know, that's true. Uh, I, you know, I haven't gotten a haircut since January because uh, I kept telling myself, I was like, ah, I just, you know, I kept pushing it off until I couldn't even go get one, even if I wanted to. This sounds like a process of decivilization, Michael. <laughs> I think yes. that's what we're all in right now yeah. is. Uh, is uh, going back to caveman times. Um, okay, so we, we have the, the Mark Cuban paradox. I also think that there's the Warren Buffett paradox where the focus is on owning assets that have a cash flow. And we see this in Bitcoin as well of people saying like, uh, you got to invest your Bitcoin with, you know, BlockFi or whatever to earn a yield. Um, otherwise, like it's not worth owning basically is kind of uh, the, 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 the view. Why is it that people have such an attraction to cash flow? And it's kind of, it, it, it's kind of the, um, the, the investors equivalent to the, the business mindset of having an obsession with revenue, right? Of, okay, how do I get Bitcoin revenue and then convert it into us dollars to pay my expenses? of how do I get cash flow out of Bitcoin uh, as part of my portfolio? This one's going to be hard for people to change their mindset on. Um, I, I think for a very long time into the foreseeable future, simply because that's how, that's what you're taught in school. If you've been in the finance industry, if you've been on Wall Street, if you've had your own business, um, you know how vital free cash flow is to the business. Everything revolves around it. The, the, mar- the valuation of it comes down to the free cash flow compared to the discount rate you're using. So, and you know, if I, if I was going to try to defend Warren Buffett, this is how I would defend. I'd say he is looking at owning good businesses that have a moat around them. And what I mean by a moat is they have a competitive advantage against all the other competitors in the space. If he owns that business and the currency changes, the business is still going to be competitive moving forward in that, in that aftermath or whatever that environment is afterwards. So if the currency changes from dollars to Bitcoins, 
Well, all of his businesses are now going to start accepting Bitcoins, and then he's going to continue to still have a business that's kicking off free cash flow that has, um, you know, a uh, competitive advantage. So I think that's just how simple his narrative is. He does not need to hit, hit anything out of the ballpark at all. He just needs to make sure he doesn't lose money for all the people that have entrusted his leadership and his expertise uh, going through this. And so I think he's just playing a very, very defensive game. Um, I think he's very skeptical because he doesn't understand the encryption and all the technology and the mining and all that. He doesn't understand it. He sees it as being a bunch of millennials who are living on hopes and dreams, trying to, to pump this thing. I think that's just how simple he's looking at it. And he's looking at this massive, hundreds of billions of dollars enterprise. Um, I, I mean, he has over 70, I want to say operational businesses. Um, I don't know how many non-operational subsidiaries that all have, you know, 10 billion plus in market cap of how much ownership he has. So he's just, he's looking at it from that lens. And so if you're a young Bitcoiner and you're saying, Oh, Warren Buffett, he's an idiot. He doesn't like Bitcoin right? Which is very easy to say because you're looking at it from your lens, which is, I don't have a lot of money. My house isn't paid off. My car isn't paid off. I mean, hell I'm living in mom and dad's basement and I need, I need to break through. I need something that allows me to break through from this disaster of a life that I'm living. And Bitcoin could go to a hundred thousand and I have one Bitcoin or I have five Bitcoins or whatever the number is. And, um, and that's going to be my out. And that's going to allow me to aggressively change the, the future and the life that, that I know there's a better version of out there for me. That's just, you're looking at things through two totally different lenses. And I think that's where the contrast and the, the bashing of each other, not that necessarily, well, I, I, yeah, I think you could say Buffett bashes it. Uh, Charlie Munger definitely bashes it. Uh, so I think that's just the, the delta between vantage points. It's also like, what system are you operating under? In, in the 20th century system of inflationary money, holding cash doesn't make much sense at all. And even when Berkshire Hathaway is holding cash, they're not actually holding cash, right? They're holding cash equivalents or, or better in the sense of yield generating assets and really, when they say they're holding cash, what they're saying is that they're holding liquid T-bills or, or so, some other yield-generating asset. They're not actually holding zero uh, percent, uh, uh, you know, yeah. physical hundred-dollar bills. Um, but he can and, liquidate it on a, a, like a snap of a finger. He can liquidate it and move it into whatever right. position. It, it is. Yeah. And so it's very rational uh, to have the view that you want to be in an asset that is generating yield when there's inflation. Uh, even mild, quote unquote, inflation of 2%, uh, because 2% over a decade is 20% uh, plus the compounding. Uh, and then 2% over two decades is 40% plus the compounding. You're talking about ha uh, ha losing half your principal in a, in a couple of decades. Um, and uh, in, in, in Warren Buffett's long-term view, 
two decades is the blink of an eye. Uh, and especially from a, an investor's perspective of wanting to retire in 40 or 50 years, uh, you're talking about a very hefty inflation tax. Can I plead? Can I have your permission to come off the top rope right now? Do. <laughs> my God. Like, I just can't tell you how much my blood boils when I hear people say inflation or just like give their spin on what they think inflation is. It just, I mean, I just, I, I have a hard time containing myself. It's a good thing people can't hear what I mutter whenever I type responses on Twitter. Um, so if you're using CPI as your basket of inflation, right? Well, you can make, you can make inflation, whatever you want. You just got to change what's in or out of that basket. So let's just look at what's happened over the last 10 years. So you had, you had central banks that provided ungodly amounts of quantitative easing into the market. So all that is, when you hear the fancy term quantitative easing, you're printing a bunch of money, you're going into the fixed income bond market, and you're buying those bonds, you're basically buying them at whatever price you want, and supplying all that liquidity to the people that were holding those bonds, and then the government's then taking those bonds, and then they're sitting on them. They're pulling them off the market. So the way I measure inflation is it's the, it's the freaking simplest equation ever. It's the expansion of monetary policy balance sheets. So if you go and you look at all these central banks balance sheets across the globe and you, you add up whatever that delta is over an annual basis, surprise, there's your inflation. It's that simple. So if you are buying these bonds and all that money that you're printing is going into the fixed income market, which then subsequently goes into the stock market, right? If that's where all the printing's going and you're not measuring any of that, that's not in your basket, your CPI basket, well, guess what? You're not going to see any of it, period, right? Like how freaking simple is that idea? It's the simplest flipping idea on the, on the face of the planet, but yet... I can't find a, a flipping person that gets that. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me. I just can't understand it. Well, now that you got interest rates at 0%, okay, collectively across the globe, across all durations for the most part, some of them are, you know, I, I can't say they're at 0%, but they're getting there really fast. And at the pace we're going with all this printing, like you're going to get there across the whole duration in the U.S. You're already there in all these other countries. Okay. Once it gets there, now it becomes just a total farce. And that money is going to start showing up. If they keep expanding the, the balance sheet of all these central banks at the pace that they're expanding it, which they, they have not slowed down, they've accelerated. Guess what? It's going to start showing up in some weird places. Because you're not going to see it coming out of the fixed income market when the whole thing is, is purchased like you saw over in Japan. The rest of the world is getting there, right? Japan's just the, the front runner of, of they got there first, but, you know, going into 1990 through the 80s and everything, like that place was, that place was booming, right? Well, they got, they got to this, this point. The they got there. They won the race, right? The printing race. Now everyone is just catching up, and it's competitive devaluation in the basement. And all of that inflation is 100% there. You're just not seeing it because you're measuring something different. So it'd be like 
Pierre, I'm going to, I'm going to measure how tall you are, but I'm going to go into the kitchen and, and measure how tall an apple is and, and use that as my measure of how tall you are. Like it's, it's just total insanity. Uh, the people say, well, well, I heard it in the Cuban interview. That's whenever I turned it off. I got halfway through the flipping interview and he goes, well, you know, 2008, we, we did all this QE, nothing happened. We didn't get any inflation. So therefore normalcy bias, it's not going to happen this time. And I do, it's just like, I want to bang my head against the wall. Well, you go back to 2008, 2007, Going into 2008, I can't remember the exact numbers, but you were like late 2007, your 10 year treasury was like slightly over 5%. And so was your federal funds rate was over 5%. In fact, the federal funds rate was higher than the 10 year treasury uh, mid to late 2007. Okay. So if that happens and you go through this situation and then they drop rates and then you do a bunch of QE and then they even buy uh, stuff that's not at the federal funds rate, but they're buying stuff further out on the duration of the bond yield curve. And they're doing all this and they're, and they're supplying all that liquidity into the system. Well, they can keep doing that until interest rates all get to 0% collectively across the globe. Once it gets there, that's why this situation right now is so different than 2008. Back then, they had so much interest rate to play, to play with. And they had it across the whole duration of the curve. They just didn't, they weren't just, they just didn't have the federal funds rate left. They had the whole duration of the curve left. And if you're going to bid the, the long tail of the, of the, of the curve on the bond yield curve, like that's a lot of flipping money to drop that hundred basis points. Like people don't understand how many trillions of dollars it takes to drop the, the 30 year bond a hundred basis points. Like it's massive. It's, it's like ungodly. I could go in and do the calculations on some of these, these tools I have on my websites and figure out what that number is, but it's, it's huge. It's massive. People don't understand that. Yeah. And to me, like a, a 0% bond is basically the, the monetary authority saying this is cash, right? Because cash is supposed to be 0%. And that as you go further out on the yield curve, you're creating more and more cash. And then when you get into the stock market, same thing. If you're backstopping the stock market, you're saying Tesla stock is cash in a FDIC insured bank. It's exactly the same because we are writing a put on it. And here's what the, uh, the, the, the intrinsic value of it is of, uh, you know, from a monetary perspective. And, but that to me is like it's the inevitable slippery slope of fiat. If if you have the ability to print money, why not monetize every asset and turn every asset into cash? Because that is the most po politically popular thing to do in any scenario. It's to say that no one can lose any money and uh, people can only make money. And that is it, the official policy of this government. But it all comes back to what I, what I said earlier in the discussion, which is they can't allow interest rates to go up, period. That is, that is why they're doing what they're doing. They cannot afford for interest rates to go up because guess what? The price of everything, and I mean everything on the entire planet, is based on interest rates. Okay, If interest rates go up, congratulations, the price of literally everything goes down. 
And it's just that simple. It doesn't matter if it's a stock. It doesn't matter if it's real estate. It doesn't matter if it's a bond. If interest rates go up, guess what? The price that, that you pay to own it goes down. And so, and, and more importantly, the reason that they can't allow interest rates to go up is because then they can't issue the debt and they can't spend at the rate that they've been spending in the past. And guess what? Every one of them want to get reelected and they want to push that funding and all that money into their district. So they're incentivized because there's no, there's absolutely no term limits for the people that are appropriating money. So if you really want to get to the critical variables as to what's driving this incentive structure that we have, it all comes down to those key points. Um, so yeah, you're going to see more of the same because you're the, the people that are making decisions are incentivized to make decisions in that way. And the only constituency that benefits from higher interest rates is new investors. All of the existing investors suffer from higher interest rates in the sense that their, uh, their portfolios are decreasing in value uh, if interest rates go up, right? Um, and only new investors who are buying assets are benefiting from this. And just mathematically, they're just a much smaller constituency than the base of existing investors. And this is the same thing with the real estate market. Like the only people who benefit from lower housing prices is new house buyers. And the entire stock of housing uh, suffers from it and everyone leveraging up against that housing. And this is saying across every asset class, you can generalize it, uh, including 30 year treasuries. Um, and well, people, so yeah, the people who don't benefit from this model are the people are your millennials because your millennials don't have the disposable income to invest. But if you, if you bought when interest rates were 5% and they get pushed down to 3%, if you had securities in, in, in whatever stock that's a somewhat decent company, let's just say you bought the index, right? It's going to go up in value. It just does because of how uh, CAPM models work and how any type of discount cash flow model works. Like it's going to go up in value because your discount rate went down. So, um, and if you're using, you got cap rates for real estate, it's the same thing. So those are the, if, if you own the securities, you're loving it. But if you are a person who doesn't have disposable income to invest, well, you're completely set over in the corner. You're not allowed to participate. You just got to sit in the corner and color your, your paper. This is kind of off topic, but do you think that this, um, the secular trend from, let's say, 1980 of 20% interest rates to today of 0% interest rates is what has driven the popularity of passive index investing versus active management because it was so easy to make money by just buying the market. I think the thing that drove that is your active managers couldn't outperform the markets. I think that's the only thing that really that came down to is, is I forget what the stat is. Uh, Tony Robbins had it in one of his books. Uh, but I mean, the number is as high as like 97, 98% of managers underperform just the straight S and P 500 index. So because of that stat, because people can see the fees and here's the part people don't realize is if you're paying a 2% fee for actively managed money, that 2% compounded over a 30 year period of time is something like one third of your value of your portfolio. So if the portfolio would have gone to a uh, million dollars, if it was actively managed and you had similar returns, you would have been at, you know, six, 
$666,000. It's something crazy like that. It's a, it's an extreme number. It's funny how that, that 2% matches the target inflation rate, <laughs> hmm. right? We've got the, the same kind of dynamic. Uh, and yet uh, in both the financial industry and in uh, monetary economics, both get downplayed as being, you know, oh, well, that's just, that's a small number. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's a, it's a hidden, when you see it at face value, it, it makes no sense and you just write it off as being nothing. All right, well, we're coming up on two hours now. So this is the, <laughs> that I think the, the, the longest noted Bitcoin podcast. For us, it uh, went fast, maybe not for the listeners. No, yeah. So I've got I've got to throw in an infomercial here. Uh, if if this uh, podcast made you bullish on Bitcoin, and you live in the United States, uh, you can sign up on Kraken and send a wire transfer same day and uh, start buying Bitcoin. If you're in Europe, you can do a SEPA transfer same day. And uh, now I'm assuming that you don't do it at uh, you know three in the morning, but uh, generally on a business day, it'll be the same day. And you'll be able to buy some Bitcoin um, and uh, subscribe to the Noted Bitcoin podcast. Share it with all your friends. Uh, subscribe Demand to the... Twitter. Unlock our account so you can uh, follow it. Yeah. If, if, if anyone here uh, is listening and is an employee. Yes, Jack, we're talking about you. Uh, is an employee at Twitter. Is the CEO an employee? I guess technically he is, right? I mean, he's, of course he's he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> no doubt about it. All right, Jack, I'm talking about you, Mr. Employee number one. Uh, <laughs> it gets uh, unlock our account. <laughs> it gets challenging when they're the chairman of the board, though, as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I, I think that they've got good corporate governance. I don't want to cast aspersions uh, without looking it up. Hey, somebody was trying to take him down. I forget who it was. But... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was that like sort of activist uh, yeah, group. Yeah, yeah. He was mad that he was, yeah, I, I think he yeah. had that fixed, but who knows? Uh, you know, a lot of companies would be upset if you're the employee of two different companies at the same time. <laughs> That's why you own all your equity. Because then you can yeah. just tell them to go piss off. <laughs> Anti-fragile. Um, so yeah, if we, it would be nice if we could get our Twitter account unlocked. Um, and uh, otherwise, uh, go subscribe to the podcast and uh, give us a nice review on iTunes. And also go subscribe to the Investors Podcast that Preston Pish uh, is hosting because he has excellent guests on. And uh, I'm trying to think of uh, Turdemeister I know was a guest on. Um, and I really enjoyed that one. Uh, Plan that B was on there. Yeah, we had Plan B on Plan there. B. Yeah. I'll tell you the one to, to listen to. So we have Jeff Booth uh, coming on the show. I think it comes out this Saturday. And guys, I'm telling you, this guy is, oh my God, his book and his, his discussion around how technology is driving price deflation and this inflationary monetary policy being the crux of the issue that drives that price deflation. I mean, he is, he is crushing it on all fronts. Uh, but yeah, I, I had a, I think I talked to him for an hour and a half and it was a fascinating discussion. And I think we're rolling that out on Saturday. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Uh, I definitely want to read his book because deflation has gotten such a 
negative stigma around it, uh, but it's uh, people very unwarranted. It, just like we were talking about inflation earlier, people do not understand the terminology. They get the terminology all mixed up. They're saying this is inflationary when it's deflationary. It's just like, oh my God. But this book is probably one of the best. Uh, it's, it's one of the best ways to level set that definition for people so that they don't use the wrong meaning behind something and they understand what drives the other. It's like I had a guy tell me the other day, he's like, oh, well, how can you say all this when everything's deflationary? It's not inflation. I said, monetary policy is inflationary, which actually causes the deflation in the prices. And he says, well, that's just your, that's just your point of view. And I'm just like, Hey man, it's whatever just you your do. opinion, man. Well, hey, hey man, this is like your opinion, you know? Um, I mean, it's just, you just got to shake your head and say, Hey man, whatever you got to tell yourself, whatever you got to tell yourself. Well, but, you pitched it. Well, I just bought it as you were talking. <laughs> good, good. I'm telling you, you're going to love, absolutely love that book. All right. Well, awesome. Preston, thank you so much for coming on. Love you guys. You guys are fun. <laughs> We'll have to get you on on again uh, when you can when you can tell us if we should be bearish or if we're hitting escape velocity. <laughs> no, and man, I was, I was hoping. Have, I've already determined that when this thing goes over hundred k, I have no opinion. If people ask me, should I buy? Should I do? That? I have no opinion. Just figure it out yourself. I go hit the to, bunker. I don't, and... I don't know what to tell you at that point. It's it's on you. <laughs> Or, or we go into uh, anti-evangelize mode of uh, no, don't buy any. I'm I'm trying to buy as much as I can for myself. Um, all right. Well, I was hoping to meet you in person this year, but uh, it looks like that <laughs> the odds of that are. Dude, I really thought it was going to happen, but you know, this is this is not looking good. No, no, that's all right. Um, maybe next year we'll meet. Uh, maybe we'll meet at uh, Warren Buffett's uh, shareholders meeting uh, because we will be the majority owners of Berkshire Hathaway at that point. <laughs> we'll be at the table with Justin's son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Justin's son will buy a lunch with us. <laughs> I thought it was funny how he came out and was like, yes, Warren Buffett now owns Bitcoin, this and that. And so then Becky Quick asked him like a couple days later and, and he goes, no, I don't have that. I gave that to the charity. <laughs> <laughs> womp, womp, womp. Well, that charity is going to do really well for itself, assuming that it did not sell it. <laughs> it liquidated it too as soon as they received it. Yeah. Yeah, they always do that. It, they they fall for the Cuban paradox. <laughs> yeah, they fell exactly. for the Cuban paradox. They they liquidated the Bitcoin. They kept the Tron. <laughs> <laughs> Worst financial decision since Tony Blair sold the gold. All right, everyone, have a good night, and uh, hey. thanks again, Preston. Always fun, guys. Love chatting with you. All right, have a good one. Okay, so what circumstances do you recommend direct attack in combination with indirect, if any? Or do you have any examples? Yeah, so we talk about flanking all the time. I always recommend a combined attack, right? right? If you only attack the flank, well, then the enemy's going to adjust and they're going to put all the defenses there. Now it's not a flank anymore. Now it's the front. It becomes the, yeah. so, so you need to feign attack or at least you need to attack with some minor level of force directly so that the enemy has to defend what you're doing. And, I mean, cl clearly when, when we were... Examples are pretty easy to come up with when we're, when we're doing raids like assaults on buildings You're gonna attack that building from multiple directions at a minimum at least you're gonna set distractions on some of the other directions 
and the same thing we were setting up overwatches yeah we're gonna have a lot of times we'd have a main overwatch and we'd have a little, a little flanker overwatch <laughs> so when you come to get us you're gonna pay and like a classic l-shaped assault there's a reason it's called an l shape it's shaped like an l you have a you have a a fire a base position that's gonna put down fire on the target and then you have a maneuver element that's gonna come in from the flank but even with that you 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 have to do a base element and a maneuver element there's a reason because you're gonna the base is gonna put down fire and then the maneuver is gonna maneuver it so yes those are those are clearly some of them it's the same thing yes it's the same thing in the business environment right in the business environment if you're gonna maneuver into a new market you don't just walk away from your other market right you don't if you're gonna develop a new product you don't throw away your old product no you keep that's your base you keep that going and then you flank Mm -hmm. so it makes sense there Um, yeah so absolutely when you when you're gonna attack attack from both directions I, in fact, I do that most of the time. So, 